This morning, our scripture reading comes from Psalm 34. We've been enjoying the Psalms this summer and uh, reflecting on them. And so I've chosen this one because I hope that the context uh, and the words of this psalm speak deeply to all of you and are a source of real encouragement. Psalm chapter 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Well, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you as saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you desires life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and he... His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and saves them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He guards all his bones, none of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. As we've been saying all summer, the Psalms are either prayers or hymns. They were, they were meditated upon, they were prayed through, they were, they were sung out. This is the context of them. And really the purpose of this meditation literature is it's an off-ramp. We're given the Psalms as an off-ramp so that we stop listening to ourselves. So that we stop ruminating on things. So that our minds get filled with His words and His ways and that actually dials us out of ourselves uh, and up into Him. And so the context of this Psalm is actually striking. Uh, Normally in the Bible, the headings that are in bold above chapters are, are not in the original manuscripts. They're there to help us as the modern readers find things. But in the Psalms, there's often a heading uh, before the first verse, and that actually is in the original Hebrew. So sometimes we get an exact understanding of what the context of the Psalm is. And the context of of this Psalm is is really striking. David is not king yet. He's called, but he's not installed. And... He is uh, running from Saul. You can read all about it in 1 Samuel 21. Saul wants, to, Saul wants to kill him. Saul sees him as a threat. There's a song going around after he killed Goliath, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, and everybody's singing David's you know, praises in, in the street as a political deliverer. And uh, so Saul is trying to take his life twice. So David runs. 
from his home. It's safer for him to be in the city of his enemies than it is in his own house. So he goes to the city of Gath, leaves Jerusalem, goes to Gath, and there's, finds no refuge there. So he's confronted by not a perceived, you know, Saul saw him as a perceived threat, but then he's confronted by King, King Ashish and his men. And this is a real threat. Saul's like, I think this guy's my enemy. But King Ashish is like, this guy actually is my enemy. And so what does David do to get away? He pretends he's a madman. The title of this psalm is a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away. He's clawing at the gates with his fingernails. He's drooling on his beard and they're like, yo, this guy's lost it. And they leave him and they don't kill him. And he sneaks off and he gets away. And then he goes to the caves. So he's basically at rock bottom. And then it gets worse. Because now he's in a cave and he's... I mean, let's face it. Do I need to describe it? You're living in a cave. He's in a cave. But then everybody who's depressed and in debt and distressed and has mega anxiety and is social rejects, they all join him in the cave. They want to be his roommates. And you know what you want when you're having a terrible time and all you want to do is be left alone to brood like Batman in your cave. You want other people who are suffering from depression and anxiety and sorrow and weightiness. You want them to join you, right? So this is, this is the context of this song, which is surprising because if you've been in church for a while, there's some bangers in there, right? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Uh, the Lord will deliver the, uh, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver them out of them all. Yeah, I mean, the psalm is just emotionally dialed to 11. But the context is in the basement, actually. This is really surprising because you would expect the tune of the psalm to be a little bit more like, Hello, darkness, my old friend. That's what it should be. But David's in the cave, and for some inexplicable reason, the psalm sounds more like, I can see clearly now the rain. Why is that happening? So I've chose this psalm to end the, the, our, our study in the summer to get us to think about the fact that there is spiritual health in David's life through some rhythms that are going to bless you and I. And I think these spiritual rhythms, these gifts of spiritual disciplines that David has, have served him in a way that's almost inexplicable if we didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I just want us to explore it, think about it. The last thing I want to say about the psalm is this. It's that it's an acrostic, nearly an acrostic. It's an, every line starts with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I'm not just doing Bible trivia for no reason. I'm just, I'm just trying to put myself in David's shoes here. Your life is at bottom. It can't get worse. You're in a cave and you're like, okay, how good is God? A. Now, I know there's three or four ancient language scholars in here, and you're going to fact-check me. You're going to go, hey, wait a minute. There's some letters missing, and actually, it's not a perfect acrostic. I know, but David just wiped the drool from his beard, so I'm going to need you to get all the way off his back <laughs> on missing some letters. But when you, when you, when you write an acrostic in this uh, literary you know, flow, you do it because it is helpful for memorization, you do it because it's helpful for learning. And then lastly, is a little more um, you know, philosophic. It's, that it's, it's like saying this is the A to Z on this subject. So it's like in the midst of his darkness, David's like, this is the A to Z on God's goodness. 
So let's look at this uh, poetry. I'm just going to walk us through a couple of the interesting shifts and turns. And I hope you're encouraged by it. it. It's all about meditating and magnifying. This is this rhythm and practice in his life is meditating and magnifying. And, and it, it gives us a handful of things. The first thing I want us to look at is how meditating and magnifying things in our lives, it can lead us out of our fears or lead us back into our fears, depending on the object of our meditation, depending on the object of, our, of our, uh, what we're magnifying. And that's not particularly you know, deep or shocking. We all understand that. Your feelings follow your focus, as Susan would say it to the kids. To help them understand how we get where we get sometimes. Your feelings follow your focus. And uh, we see this in David for sure. Old Testament theologian James Boyce said of this psalm. He might have been hiding in a dismal cave. But his heart was hiding in the Lord. And there's this spiritual health that's evident in David's life and his suffering. It's like antibodies that's sort of fighting off the darkness. That would swallow joy. That would paralyze that would keep the heart from being dominated by fear, just dr- taken down to the, into the sunken place. And as a, as a result of, of you know, relating uh, to God and meditating on God, and it changes his whole posture. Uh, and instead of relating to everything through this lens of just depressed fear... There's this shift, and, and he's got this posture of faith. And I think i got to say out of the gate that this isn't anything that's going to be developed overnight. And if, if you're here this morning and you're like, oh, this sermon is perfect because I'm in a cave right now. This, this is the cave season of my life. Uh, you know, we can't go home and be like, all right, that's it. And crack the knuckles and be like, okay, we're going to dial in. And then 24 hours go, huh, I, don't, I feel nothing. This is a rhythm and a practice like eating well and exercise and all these. This has just got to be something that's built in. But I know spiritually in my life, I always related to the spiritual disciplines like, you know, a lot of people relate to January 1st gym memberships. You know, it's like, okay, this is it. We are going to experience the goodness of God and joy and suffering and strength. And then you go and then you pull all your spiritual muscles. And you're like, oh, man, that was hard, harder than I thought. I'm going to let my muscles breathe. I I can't. Read the Bible every day this week. That's great. So this has got to be a rhythm of months and of years. And of course, there's an ebb and a flow. And we we falter and we get away from these disciplines and we repent. We're like, oh God, I've lived like in self-sufficiency, which I think is a good way to relate to the spiritual disciplines. It's not a matter of you read your Bible, God loves you. You didn't read your Bible, God doesn't love you, which is absurd and sort of a works righteousness pathway. It's just an endless treadmill of spiritual tiredness. I don't think that's the categories of God loving you and not loving you, but it is, the categories are how exhausted or strengthened am I? Am I secure or volatile? Those are good categories. And am I living with a dependency on God or a self-sufficiency? So if I don't read or meditate on the scriptures, if I don't pray for a week, that's not a commentary on God, whether God loves or doesn't love me anymore. That's a commentary on my posture of self-sufficiency towards God. Prayer, what do I need prayer for? Life is good. Meditation on scripture, what do I need that for? Life is good. Money in the bank, body seems to be working. Who needs God? I'll take a Flintstone vitamin and take my chances. And then life crashes and caves and we're like, oh God. So this meditation and magnifying in David's life had been going on for, for a long time. So that when he hit the cave, he clearly and spiritually had a health there that helped him not die in the cave. It's amazing. 
Verse 2, he starts out, my boast shall make it, uh, I shall make my boast in the Lord. And really, considering the context, he just wiped the drool from his chin when he wrote this. So he's definitely boasting in his weakness. He's definitely boasting in the idea that God is with him. He's, not, he's certainly not boasting in his cleverness. He's not like, oh man, did you see how I got away from Kim, uh, King Abimelech with the whole nail scratching on the gates thing? Ethan Hunt got nothing on me. That's not what's happening here. He's just trusting that God is... God is life. And it's interesting that he doesn't say that he's delivered from uh, the physical dangers, although there are Psalms that say that. Verse 4 says that he's actually delivered from all of his fears. And I think that's an interesting way of phrasing it because you and I do always have physical, you know, dangers, threats, problems, sufferings in our life, but it's, it's not even necessarily those that sink us emotionally so much as the fears that get associated as we just ruminate on it and lay in bed and play through all the scenarios in our minds and we sort of like have these Doctor Strange moments where we're just like, oh, I've calculated every way this thing can go and hey, every way is going to be terrible and we just kind of ruminate in that. It's interesting, he says, I'm delivered from the fears that were just associated from that mind-spinning, you know, event and he's magnifying God. If you've ever seen a small child watch TV, they, sometimes they watch it this far away from the screen. They just stand there and you're like, hey, back up. And you have to come on, get back here. You don't have to stand so close to it. And, and uh, when you're that close, you can't see anything else. That's what it means to magnify. It's like I've made this thing so big in my eyes, I can't see anything else. Of course, the living room and your family and the people on the couch, you know, they're bigger than the screen. But of course, when you're that close to it, it's all you can see. And when you're in the cave, you've got to make sure the biggest thing you can see is the goodness of your God. That his faithfulness, his, his presence, his grace, his peace. And so David's magnifying him in this way. It says in verse 5 that they looked to him and were radiant. Notice how all of a sudden there's a shift in the poetry from it being about him to the they. Who's the they? There's like this prophetic thread that runs through this where it's not just about him anymore. But there's those whose faces are radiant, almost like when you are going through a distressing time or situation, or if, uh, if you've ever had the horror of being somewhere with your children, then you look and you don't see them, and then you've got to search for them in a crowd, and then you find them again. Your face is radiant. It's like there's this tremendous relief that comes, and David's describing, describing it this way. He goes on to use the language of pain. This poor man cried out. This language of pain as he's become the victim of insecure leadership, right? Saul perceiving him as a threat. He has no awe of God, led to presumption in God. He's trying to keep his power and he's relating to David with tremendous, tremendous injustice. And it's all led to the language of pain as David's grappling with the betrayal of all of this. And yet through all of this, like I said, the tone is so sort of triumphant and joyful. It's hard to remember the context that he wasn't writing this from a throne. He's writing it in the cave. Which leads us to the next thing, this meditating and magnifying. It does empower us to shift from a posture that's self-absorbed, fixated on the self, to one of generosity, able to give of ourselves. You remember that familiar phrase, many of us who've been in church for a while know it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We've heard that so many times. But the original context of oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Who is the original audience? He's in the cave. And there's all these people in the cave. His life is at rock bottom. Their lives are at rock bottom. 
And now David's like, okay, it's time to teach. You see how fantastic this is. All of a sudden there's this shift. The poetry shifts into encouraging, discipling, teaching, the catechizing. It's, it's incredible. He wants that original audience to taste what he's tasted. They're all in the cave crying. And David is like, guys, you got to taste this. It will lift your soul from your depression and your sorrow and the darkness. It will lift you. It's what we all do when something blows us away, right? You find a great coffee spot in town. And then people are like, hey, I just moved to the city. And you're like, oh, you have to. You have, you're, you have you're, I will take you there myself. Coffee evangelists. Spreading the gospel of the good coffee. That's what we do. You gotta taste it. We got, you know, I wasn't gonna do this, but I am gonna do this. We've got some friends here. Some of you might meet them after. And I hope I don't embarrass you guys, but this is, uh, hi, Mateus. Matthias and Lys, they're here from Brazil, so they traveled further than anybody this morning for church, so uh, kudos to you guys. But anyways, they moved to our city, and I've, they've been joining us over uh, Zoom for months uh, and on Sunday mornings, and they've moved to our city, and they're going to worship with us. And uh, we were having a call, and I was talking to them, and they were like, we have to go to Tim Hortons. We've got to do the Canadian thing and go to Tim Hortons. And I was like, woof. Oh, mamma mia, okay. I mean, I'm going to take you. Uh, but I'm going to take you there first, then to a good coffee spot to wash the taste out. I'm just kidding. I'm being so bougie. Some people are like, I can't worship at this church. This, this prosperity preacher doesn't think Tim Hortons coffee is okay. I drink Tim Hortons coffee all the time. I'm just joking. But you want to taste it. So you would be an evangelist of it. So like, oh, they've moved to our city. They're here from Brazil. I've got to take them to a good coffee spot. They're downtown Kitchener. I've got to take them to a good coffee spot. That's what David's doing. You've got to experience this, guys. Which leads to uh, sort of the next uh, thought as he's... Sh- I want you to just notice this shift out of himself that what is objectively true about God is experientially true and he wants others to, experiencing it, to experience it. And he knows what, what we need to know, which is that God is on the other side of all of our decisions. He made a decision. He decided to scratch a gate and drool on his face. That was a decision he made when life was terrible. Got him out of a situation. That's the context. And what, what amazes me is it's not like God told him to do that. So the way he's just relating to this escape is like everything is providentially from God. God is good. He is on the other side of every decision that I make. And he's going to work it out for the good of my salvation. He's not going to work the situation out. He's still in a cave. The circumstance has not changed. David has changed. That's what you and I need. A faith and a strength and a sense of resilience and presence of God's grace through meditation and magnification. So that when it's like, yeah, nothing's changed. I'm still in a cave. But my God has changed me. God didn't tell him to do it. Hey, David, here's how you're going to get out of this. Like an ancient Ocean's Eleven heist scenario. You know, we just need a Billy Miner. We're going to end that with a King Ashish. And then we 
going to get you out of there. And then David's going, wow, God, it worked. No, that's not this. Sometimes we get so paralyzed in difficult times, like, oh, God, what should I do? And if I do the wrong thing, then what's going to happen? And where does that path and where does that lead? My friends, breathe. You are in the will of God because you're his child. The will of God is not some sort of ancient, you know, mystic schematic for your life that you've got to like tee into or you keep on getting off the path. You are standing in his will. God does not infantilize his children to the point where like every decision is micromanaged and charted where now prayer is like this exercise of terrifying paralysis lest we pray and then do the wrong thing. We trust our God. We make our decisions and we know he's on the other side of what we do. And he's going to be and he's going to carry us through it. David is still in the cave. The way out is, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the way out is through. This is how God often works. It's not a silver lining theology. I'm not going to teach you, hey, if you do A, B, and C, then that cave that you're in, this thing's going to change. What I really want for you is that whether it changes or it doesn't change, that there is a resilience in your heart and a trust in your God and a peace in your soul. And so... He says, fear the Lord, you as saints, trust in him. This great trust transfer as he's turning to God. The, the uh, philosophy professor at, James, at uh, Calvin College, his name was uh, James K. Smith. And he wrote a book called, You Are What You Love. And in it, he talks about how the heart of humanity is like an existential shark. Just constantly moving, constantly moving, constantly need, needing feeding. And the question is really, where is that? Where do we go for feeding? Where do we go for the meditation, for the, magnif- for the magnifying? And so David is, uh, goes on from this text to say, Those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. Even the young lions will lack and suffer hunger. This is an interesting thing to say when you're in a cave and you don't know where your next meal is. Ah, those who trust in the Lord are going to lack no good thing. And I just feel like the audience would be like, Does this guy know? Hi. We're in a cave. David's like, I know. I got you, Jedediah. Sit down. How is this? Notice that David has just turned out. He's turned out from himself. Oh, taste and see the Lord's good. Leads to the last thing. It compels this desire to live as image bearers of God. It it compels this desire to to see the, uh, you know, from, from the experience we've had of the goodness of God to just live to his glory. And he says in verse 11... He says in verse 11, Come you children, listen to me. Who are those children? The people in the cave. He, see, he's teaching now. Class is in session. Uh, the class of 1060 BC, Caves of Adullam. Catechism. And he gives this teaching, verses 13 through uh, 14. If you want to live a good life, if you want to have good days, keep your tongue from evil. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's quite likely that the audience was doing the opposite of all of those things. Living in self-preservation, which led them to the caves that they're in now. But to say that to live a good life and to have a good life and enjoy a good life is to live to the worship of God. That's actually the opposite of the lie. The original fear of, uh, fear of missing out in the garden. If you turn to God, if you trust God, if you live a life of worship, you will not be fulfilled. That's the way to crazy religious bondage. Forget God. Forget church. Forget, uh, forget this. And just be your own God and be an individual spiritualist and 
That was the temptation in Genesis 3. And here David is saying, you've got to curve out of yourself and turn back towards God. Which leads to the next language that he uses of knowing God, getting the eyes of God on you versus losing the face of God. The poetic instruction unfolds. The ultimate good is to know God. It's very personal. The ultimate punishment is also personal. It's to lose the face of God. This rejection of God, to being estranged from God, end up having to be the curator of your own meaning. And so to define a good life is, as we've been talking about, it's a life that's not volatile. It's a life that is secure and safe, whether we're in... in, uh, in the throne room or we're in the cave. And he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And that's intended to be very encouraging. The eyes of the Lord are on you. Some of you have been traumatized by the song you sung as kids. Be careful, the Father up above is looking down. And you're like, ah, this doesn't sound, this sounds terrifying. God's eyes are on me. But you've got to understand the poetry. He's saying his eyes are on you like a caring parent, a loving parent. A parent whose posture is determined to provide and lead and guide and care for you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He says the face of the Lord is against the wicked. Those are two different things. One is encouraging and one is sobering. The diligent eye of a caring parent or the diligent eye of a just judge. And of course the good news for all of us who have been united to Christ, the grace and faith, is that our judge is our justifier. We already have our verdict. And the verdict is not guilty. Because Christ has taken all of our guilt. And because that's true, we desire to live to his glory. That's, that's the fountainhead from which our obedience flows. At the cross, Jesus Christ experienced utter silence. So that you and I, when we cry out to God, we do not get God's silence. We get his comfort. Christ was forsaken so that we could be uh, forgiven, so that we could be received and cared for and loved. And I close with this good news. The good news is that our God did not create the brokenness in this world. We did that to ourselves. He's created this beautiful world, which is clearly broken. It's a little bit like living in a beautiful, you know, it's like being in a beautiful house that had a warlord who raided it and is squatting in it and is doing all manner of darkness out of it. But in the end of the scriptures, he's evicted. And God restores this earth, he restores our bodies, he raises us from the finality of death to enjoy his good renewal. And because the gospel of renewal for you and I is true, we are not passive observers in this city. We are also not the saviors of our city, but we are ministers in our city. And so as those who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, uh, and we have experienced his goodness for us in the sorrow and the pain of our caves, may we go into our city as ministers so that when others find themselves distressed and in, in their caves, we can say to them, oh, taste and see that our God is good. He's not going to make everything in your life okay. That's absurd. But what he does do is, by his spirit, by his indwelling grace, bring such renewal in you that he carries you through this darkness and this sorrow. That united to Christ, we're filled with the spirit. We're infused with courage. We are guided by the wisdom of God's word. We desire to walk in obedience to his law of love. So may we increasingly live to the glory of the one who saves us in grace. 
May we taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who trust in him.